and also like I believe everyone I talk to, so I would like believe it not. I have, I have that problem. Yeah, right. Too, yeah. And so then the, I would talk to the next person and be like, oh, he's totally guilty. Oh my god, he's totally guilty. You know. And then the next <laughs> day I'd be like, oh, it's so sad. He's in this prison. You know what I mean? Like I was constantly, constantly changing my mind. So it was like a very willful keeping of one's mind open. If you've only listened to one podcast, other than this one, it's probably this one. That's right. Coming up this season on Serial. Hi, everyone. I'm Abby Wright. Welcome to On Assignment. And I'm Lisa Cohen. Last week, we hosted the exceptional team behind the Serial podcast. And that is one impressive trio of journalists, Sarah Koenig, Julie Snyder, and Dana Chivas were here at the J School. In January, we gave them a DuPont Award, and they returned the favor last week by giving a masterclass to our radio slash audio students. It was a thrill to have them in the building, and we all got to hear about what goes into the making of this, what can only be called a cultural phenomenon. The event was hosted by our own Daniel Alarcon. So joining us in the studio today, Hello. author, journalist, J School prof, and a veritable renaissance man. Daniel Alarcon. <laughs> Hello, good morning. Good morning. This is the first time that someone is actually sitting here with us in the booth. It's fun. This is an extraordinary honor to have the, the three producers of the show with us. Yeah, we were so lucky that they were able to come by. And as listeners, it was just a thrill to hear about, you know, pull back the curtain on the process of how they do what they do. What, and for our students, what do you think? What, what did it mean for them to hear from, from the producers of the show? Well, it's funny. You know, like I think that um, when we ask sort of like a show of hands, like what if, or, or like, you know, the beginning of the semester, what have you listened to? What, what kinds of stuff do you listen to? The show that came up again and again, almost everybody had listened to Serial. You know, that um, I think, I hope that it was a useful conversation for, for students because what I tried to do in, in the, as, as, as moderator was think of the students in mind, like what what kinds of things would they want to ask that are not so much about like, you know, let's gossip about potential, you know, conspiracy theories or let's talk about whether Adnan did it or not. But let's actually talk about the, the editorial process, the reporting process, the writing process, the production process. Those are things that I find interesting as a as a professional in the field. There were some great tips, actually, I thought. As a teacher, there are times when your students, usually at this point in the semester, your students aren't, I've tuned you out completely. Right. Um, and so it's really good, and I celebrated it every time. I felt that they were echoing things that I had said in class um, that, um, you know, the students haven't listened to me anymore. I'm like, oh, look at that. You the know? pre-interview. Sarah Koenig has talked about the importance of a pre-interview. So now when I say it, maybe you can just imagine her face <laughs> and, her, and her voice. Okay, for more on Serial, seriously though, do you really need us to tell you where to go for more on Serial? Go to our website, onassignmentpodcast.org. And now to our conversation with Daniel Alarcon, Sarah Koenig, Julie Snyder, and Dana Chivas. I, I just want to start with throwing a question out there because I, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about here at the school with our students is like story selection. How do you know the story is a story? And it's one thing to say, how do you know a story is like, you know, a three and a half minute radio piece or like a 2,000 word print piece. So I want to ask you, the three of you, um, how do you know it's a 12 part series, uh, that's, you know, that, that is going to grab the attention of 190 million people? 
Uh, it's it's a cinch. I mean, <laughs> you, um, well, you know, you you don't. Um, I think the for season one. I mean, we've only done it two seasons, so sure. I, I can't draw on my long history as a whatever serial person. But um, for for season one, I think the way it came about is that I was already working on that story. I had already been looking into that case of Adnan Syed thinking I would do it for This American Life, and then came up with the idea for Serial sort of at the same time, and then we immediately started thinking like, okay, well, if we do this Serial idea, what would the story be? And I was like, well, I'm working on this thing that's pretty interesting, and, and so it felt like Basically, what I did is I sat down. Julie and Ira were like, well, what would, just sketch out what it would be then if, if this story were to fit into this structure, how would it be? And so I sat down and I think it was 12 episodes, actually. Like, it ended up being pretty close or 10 or something. But I just started writing and I was like, well, I'm interested in this. Well, I mean, there's like all this plot stuff happening. But then there were just larger thematic questions that I knew I wanted to get to. And this very interesting central character, <clears throat> very strong central character. I had, there were so many places where I had confusion. And that's a good thing. Very yeah. good, yeah, yeah, essential thing, yeah. essential thing. And, and um, so it just felt like, oh, this is a thing where there's this giant question at the center of it, and there's a whole world kind of on the axis of that, you know, spinning around the axis of that central question that I find fascinating and confusing. And so it just felt like, well, this can sustain. For Serial, what we're looking for is a strong plot, a strong character, and then a ton of questions, and then a ton of questions. I mean, season two, we thought it was gonna be much smaller than it ended up being. Like, we, I was initially thinking like, I think like our first conversation was like four to six. I think we thought six. Yeah. yeah, and then as we started reporting, we were like, well, now I gotta call these. So, well, let me call yeah. the state department. Well, let me let's just go. And then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I just feel like the questions actually are propelling the right the structure. The, the, one of the things that I think that that makes it super interesting is that um, the decision to not report it all out and then produce it and then release it weekly, but actually report it as you're releasing it, uh, that totally changes the trajectory, at least in the first season, and, and in the second season some as well. You, you start getting calls, you start, you know, uh, sources start coming out. Were you aware uh, that that was going to happen? Did you, did you hope and suspect that that might happen, that, that uh, the impact of the show itself would lead to the investigation taking different, different directions? We've probably done at least like you know eighty percent, eighty five percent of the reporting. Like we've done, we've done most of the reporting as we start releasing episodes. But we d we were aware that yeah, it was very very likely that more information would come in as as we started releasing stories. Um, and we wanted to be able to respond to it, and so it seemed like it made a lot of sense. And especially with that story, the first season, because we knew going into it that like we hadn't solved this case, you know. So anything could happen once between now and when we're kind of done. We were still open to the idea that anything could happen and right. any information could come in. So we wanted to be able to respond to that as we as as we went forward. It's funny that you say that because I think that of the 190 million listeners, I think maybe like 120 thought that you guys knew 
you know, what happened and, and whether Adnan did it or not. And, and we're expecting the kind of the, the resolution that comes with, kind of, you know, and, I, and I, I hesitate to say the true crime genre, but right. the sort of the conventions of, the, the, of it are that, you know, there's an answer, there's a resolution. I think, do you think really that many people thought that like all along we knew exactly where we were going to end up? That'd be so cheap. I know. I, I actually that meant that I was lying the whole time. I'm telling you. I mean, like, or, okay, so how would you have believed me as a narrator after well, that? I didn't say I was one of those people. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just. You're in loco listener right now. Yeah. No. No. I. I, I was. I, I think maybe that. Maybe they didn't think that you knew all along, but they thought that you would get there. Well, well we. Yeah. <laughs> so did we. <laughs> it's not crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did well, you expect to get there? Hope. Thing. I mean, I think we all. I think. We all wanted to get there. Yeah, it was sort of you know a thing that was really driving us was we want like we wanted to know what happened. We wanted to get to the bottom of what the truth was, and so yeah, we sort of I think there was a a string of months there where we really thought we were gonna figure it out, and um, but I'm glad we didn't. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I mean it's it's hard because sometimes like you say like well especially when you're a journalist. Is it an answerable question? Right. And and sometimes you do have questions of where you say, well, I just you know, a lot of times it'll be a subjective thing or something, you know, like it it, it doesn't really have an answer. But this one, I mean, it is an answerable question. Like yeah. you can answer this question; it does have an answer. Right. And so I think he in, either did it or he didn't do it. Yeah. And so I felt felt like in that way, I I I had faith in our abilities. I think naively, I had faith of where I was all like, oh. Yeah. Oh, we can answer that question. In, in, in our radio classes, we talk a lot about having a, like a good talker, you know, and how important that is and how much a story depends on having that strong voice. Um, and I think, it would be, I think it would be cool if you could describe, and this is for all three of you, uh, but I guess particularly you, Sarah, you spoke to, to Adnan so much, the elements of what a good talker can be, and particularly in regards to, to Adnan, like what is it about him that makes him so compelling um, for radio specifically? He's smart, and he is very thoughtful about his own predicament um, and his own situation, and he's willing to talk about that. Not about everything. There was some stuff he kept back. I mean, there was like I would say in a, a year of talking to him there were probably one or two pretty minor things he asked me to keep off the record, which I did, but like they weren't even germane. It was just like personal stuff. Um, so he was very open, and he was, um, I mean, part of it is just getting to know someone. You know what I mean? Like, I think he became a better and better talker as we be got to know each other better and better, which is natural, right? Like, right. you just get more comfortable with each other until you're expressing things you wouldn't have expressed six months earlier. Um, but, he, you know, he can be funny. He, he, he's emotional. Um, he's also a very anecdotal talker. Oh, and he's a, a totally anecdotal. Talk about, a, explain that. Yeah, he's a good storyteller. Yeah, yeah that's, I forgot that part. <laughs> it's kind of the main thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think that was the thing that really struck me about him when I first started hearing the tape is that almost every time you asked him a question, he answered with a story and that illustrated right. like what he was trying to get at with that. And, and, and so there, there's a thing about him that he's, he's super likable, yeah. you know, and, and then and you can tell in, when you hear it that you're that you like him, you know, and then how then do you uh, report against him? You know, like, and, and make sure that you aren't being seduced by his charm and his 
you know, his evident charisma. I had colleagues, you know, saying to me, like, you sound like you, you sound too soft on him in this tape, or this piece of writing makes it seem like you're on his side. Like, pull back, pull, you know, like I needed people, editors basically saying, like, watch yourself, right. like, look at what you're doing. And it was super helpful. I mean, not just in a like, let's manipulate the product so it doesn't seem like I'm on his side, but like really forcing me to question like, wait, are you on his, what are you doing? Think about what you're doing. And also like, I believe everyone I talk to, so I would like believe a not. I, I have that problem Yeah, too, right? Yeah. And so then the, I would talk to the next person, I'd be like, oh, he's totally guilty, oh my God, I'm totally guilty, you know? And then the next <laughs> day I'd be like, oh, it's so sad, he's in this prison for, oh, oh my God, he's so guilty. You know what I mean? Like I was constantly, constantly changing my mind. So. You know, it, it was just like, it, it, it was like a very willful keeping of one's mind open. It's like, that's work to do that. Like, yeah. you have to make yourself do that. And, and I did as much as I could. I, I wonder if that, that, that trait that you just mentioned of like, you believe everyone you talk to is actually, is a good thing in a journalist. In, in, in that when you're with somebody, you can, you can actually meet them where they're at, you know, and, and, and sort of not question, I mean, you should question them later, but in that moment, just being totally like, okay, I'm gonna listen to everything you say and, and, and let you convince me, you know? Yes, I, I'm gonna claim it as, um, Good. as, Good. A, as a plus That was right a softball, Sarah. But um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm a genius, actually. My gullibility is, is all, no, I mean, I feel like- you, you, you The DuPont Award in gullibility. You either have to do one or the other, right? Like, you have to believe no one or believe every, like, I feel like the middle ground is what's different. But I always, always been jealous of reporters who are like, ah, it's totally full of crap, ah, I know, but you know, and I'm always like, how do you know? But how do you know? <laughs> but, but I have to say, like, I think Sarah does a really good job of pushing back on people, even if maybe they are convincing her, like, before her interviews, you know, set of questions, what are we going to try to get to the bottom of? And Sarah does a super good job of pushing back on them. And even if maybe she is convinced by them or, or agrees with them or whatever, like, you always ask those questions to push back because we need to hear what their answers are. And, um, but you have a nice way of doing it so that it's not contentious, um, which I think makes people feel comfortable sort of talking to you about, about what, how they really feel. I think, I think that helps. You I'm fearful. But, <laughs> but it's it, because you're fearful. Dana, you mentioned, uh, uh, I guess, preparing for these interviews. And I wanted to, to, to talk about that because I think it's, it's, it's probably useful for us all to hear. Um, how, how much preparation does go into these? Because the, the, you know, one of the things that radio does is you have a conversation and it is so natural and it is so, it feels so alive and human. And yet I know that for every interview, or for not every, but for most interviews, there's, there's a ton of preparation and sort of you, you know, you don't go and, and talk to Jay like cold, you know? Like, how does that happen and, and you know, behind the scenes? We know it's gonna be an important interview and so Sarah will do a, a bunch of prep for that. Um, maybe I'll do some prep for that. And then there are interviews where it's like, we're not sure if this person's gonna be a good talker or not, so I'll call, and, I'll call them up first and talk to them on the phone, do like a pre-interview, find out what they have to say, see if they're a good talker, and um, basically report back to Sarah and Julie. And that way, if we're like, yeah, it sounds like this person's a pretty good talker, it sounds like they have stuff that we want on tape, then that way I can, I can take that stuff and, and I give Sarah like a version of it so she doesn't know exactly what the person is gonna say to, to sort of keep it a little more natural. Um, but that way like she is prepared for it and knows what to ask. I hope all of my students just heard that. Cause that's like, yeah. we've, we've been saying like that exact same thing. That's brilliant. Pre-interview? Pre-interview, the, yeah. the, the yeah. art of the pre-interview. Yeah. Very important. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. <laughs> I, f I, I didn't feed you that at all. <laughs> I went to school here, so yeah, you want me that's to true. say it. That's true. that's true. Julie, you 
edited uh, DAL for so many years, weekly show, um, different rhythm. The pieces are, you know, can be 20 minutes, 45 minutes, 15 minutes. You know, it's uh, you're juggling many things at once. Uh, you know, thinking, you know, a, a show a month ahead or two months ahead, and also planning, you know, finishing the, that week's show. Can you talk to me about about that transition from your role as senior editor at TAL to to Serial, which is just an entirely different canvas size? Um, it wasn't that different. It wasn't that different. Bummer. I I know I know I'm sorry. That was but such it a took good me question. actually. It took me a while to figure out that it wasn't that different. I thought at first that it was going to be really different. I thought what we were doing felt like oh my God, this is like making like a documentary film or something like that, you know? But one of the things that was helpful for season one is that we did know that the first episode, ideally the first episode, would run on This American Life because otherwise we weren't exactly sure how people would find out that we existed. And so the first episode is entirely structured with that in mind of this has to be a This American mm -hmm. Life episode. Um, was actually very helpful then as we moved forward because then I began to realize that in a lot of ways all of them actually have to be structured exactly the same way. Like yeah. we need a question at the beginning and like that states out like here's what we're doing, here's what the point of this is, here's what the question is and you're going to have to come to some sort of resolution on that question at the end that then spins you to next week. And, and it's funny like that when it comes to like the thing at the end of an episode that spins us to the next episode, it's really not hard. Like, it's not, like, it, you know what I mean? Did you get that, kids? But no, but don't you, I feel, it's an afterthought a bit. Like, we know where we're going next, yeah. but in terms of, like, what exactly is the, um, what's going to be the, like, sort of the final thing at the end of the episode that teases kind of to the next episode and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, oftentimes you don't even have, we don't even have it until the second or third draft. Sometimes of, we don't have it till the day before we air. That's so true. Like, oh, it's just one line. We'll just, we'll think of it. I know. I know. Yeah. So it's not, so, so they're really self-contained episodes. And then in that way, it kind of felt fairly, fairly similar to, to working on This American Life. Yeah. The, the difference is, um, like, having to think about the same story for so long, which, um, is fun and fulfilling and then also ex exactly as like boring and dreary as like I sort of also feared that like you're like I'm just tired of thinking I'd yeah. love to think about a different story for a yeah. while yeah yeah Dana was mentioning before we, we the uh, we started that um that you're all taking kind of st staggered vacations now is, is that just just uh, you have to finish one season and then just everyone goes back to your yeah. Just like, yeah, maybe. We have to like, come up with other stuff to talk about because we've bored our spouses for so long <laughs> that it's like we gotta go out into the world. And, like, I never talk about it with my you spouse. You don't? He could care less. Who do you talk to about You. Oh, God. <laughs> ben is so lucky. <laughs> we bore, I think, That's amazing. spouses to death with this. For, it's for like a year. It's like the same. Because it's funny, story. Sarah, you were at the epicenter of this like cultural phenomenon about which millions of spouses talked about like every I night. I always thought it was really funny and then that you we don't talk about it rely with your own on husband? Sarah's husband of not spilling the beans because I think we were at episode five, four or five, when Ben said to you, wait, which one's Jay? <laughs> and I was just all like, <clears throat> I know who's not a fan. He wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't know how to give a spoiler. No, like, exactly. Yeah. Like, I thought it was really funny. Oh. I was all like, oh. It's well. interesting, Well, Let me know when you hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so many times uh, when confronted with a 
with a narrative problem in, in reporting, you have to you you end up kind of inventing a method that you that you hadn't known existed, you know, and you and, and it's probably happened to, to all of you previously. But I was I was wondering if you could talk about any any three of you in in the course of season one, what kind of workarounds did you be, were you forced to invent that then became almost like stylistic points of, uh, or aesthetic points of, of the show? I mean, I think the main one for the season one story was having Sarah be so present as a narrator, but also as a character. It, it, it was something for us, like coming from this American life, it's not like, you know, oh my God, we've never used the word I before in a script. Right. You know what I mean? Like it, it's very, it's, it's already personal journalism and, and, and we're familiar with that. So, so we weren't going into season one thinking that, that Sarah was going to be so present. It was more something that as we started doing the edits on the episodes, realizing that we needed more of because the story was really dense and there were a ton of details and the story sort of lived in those details. And the problem was if Sarah wasn't going to tell us what she thought that they meant or what they meant to her, then it just started feeling like a list of details. And you're yeah. like, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be making of this. I don't know. Or care. Yeah, like, is this that big of a deal or is this not that big of a deal? Yeah. And so it started becoming clear that if, if Sarah told us what she thought or didn't think or didn't know, then it at least gave you a context to know, like, where to put all of that stuff. And so I, th I thought that was interesting. And I it was something that we began to realize like, oh, this is what we need and then had to rely on it, I mean, all the way through to the end. Is the editing process the same as TAL? It's like, you know, phone tape, I mean, you know, like, like a phone edit would be in any other context? Like tape, yeah, talking, much. tape, talking, mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah. And how many people are in the room? We do. Well, you're not in the room. I'm not in the room. Yes. No, we do it over Skype or we either do Skype or phone because Sarah lives in, in Pennsylvania. Um, so let's see, for the first edit, it's always the three of us. And then for the second edit, we bring in, we usually bring in Ira on the second edit. And then the third edit is the final edit. And sometimes Ira will be in on the final edit, sometimes not. Sometimes we'll bring in an entirely new person for the final edit. Because the first edit is the one where it's the most... Oh, it's terrible. It's not terrible. It's not terrible, but it's big and it's long and it's like you know yeah. what I mean. And it's we have we have one. It's not terrible. We have one. It's terrible. Dana, do you want to break Sa the deadlock? Sarah starts every first edit by saying, "Are you guys? I'm so sorry. This is so bad. I just I can't. I'm just all right. I'm just gonna read it. Literally every single edit. That's totally awesome. true. You should actually yeah, just record be, that and just play, play a tape But I it. feel like season one, then it would be like, you would be like, no, it's good. No, it's good. And then season two, your guys were like, well, let's go. Let's ah, get it on. Okay, well, you know, I heard some good stuff. I mean, we'll be, we have, we have a few days. We're going to be, you know, like that. Especially if you're doing long form stories, you get so in the weeds of it that you lose track of like, wait, do people understand this like nitty gritty piece yeah. of the story that I understand? And you just won't remember so get somebody to listen to your story and so, get them to say totally. to you, like a lot of the edit is just like, wait, I don't know what you're talking about there. Or, or I don't I was care bored about here. it. I was bored, yeah. yeah. Just like, it's, it's not rocket science, but just like to he have somebody respond to it is, is really helpful. Yeah, no, I, I believe in editing like with, with the petulance of like a six-year-old kid who's like, I'm bored, yeah. I'm bored. <laughs> Julie um, 
like, I think it was like two weeks or th three weeks before we launched season two, I remember you said, start, start explaining to, because we were trying to be so hush-hush about like, don't tell anyone what we're doing, because we just didn't want like all eyeballs trying to like handicap it before we launched. But um, Julie was like, start telling people what the story is. Because we were trying to figure it out ourselves. We were like, yeah. Wait, what is this story? Like, what is the trajectory of the story? What is the narrative? Like, what, are, what story are we telling even? And, and it's so, it sounds so basic, but like if you, it's hard. It just forces you to distill what is it about the story that's exciting to you and like what, what are the things you want another person to know? I, I want to talk about the second season because I, one of the things that I, when, when I asked that question about kind of workarounds, I was thinking a lot about season two. I mean, the, the, the most, the, you know, a dramatic handicap is that the tape is tape that you received and you didn't get to speak with Bo. Um, who's the protagonist, you know? And it limits you, and then on the other hand, great creativity comes out of great limitations, right? So I, I imagine it was a big decision that you guys had to take. Do we do this story given that we don't have access to the protagonist? And, and what were the questions in the room when you guys were deciding you know, to take this on? I mean, I think for th that was a, I mean, that was, that was a huge one. It was the biggest one from the very beginning was like, this tape is, the, 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 the conversations between Bo Bergdahl are, the tape we have of him is him talking to a filmmaker named Mark Boll. And uh, Mark is interviewing Bo for research for a film that, that Mark is doing. And so those conversations are, are really great tape and they were really interesting. But the fact of realizing that we were going to build a whole season around it and that Sarah wasn't going to talk to Bo it, it did feel like, wow, like what are we going to do around it? But I think like the main thing that it made me realize was just that, um, well, we're going to ha have to try and have relationships with other people, you right. know what I mean? And then that, that was a little hard at first because, um, you know, you started doing like kind of the, the first round of interviews started being with all um, of the soldiers, the platoon mates, Bo, Bo Bergdahl's platoon mates. Yeah, they were very guarded. They they didn't know who we were. They were very suspicious, kind of, of like the media in general in a way that I totally understood. But I think there was just like a level of trust that kind of yeah. needed to be um, established. And then it did feel emotional. I don't know. I think you felt an emotional relationship with those, with a lot of those. Some of them, yeah. 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 I mean, it was uh, it was a big question of just like, what's my role in this story, and what's what's my way in? Like, do I? How am I going to care about Bo if I don't really know him? And, and how am I going to care enough to like spend all this time thinking right. about him? Um, but I have to say, like, <coughs> disappeared pretty fast. I mean, I, th I do think it was more a traditional story in the sense that I wasn't as, not nearly as big a, of a presence in the story as I was in season one. I would, it would have been inappropriate. It wouldn't have made sense, so yeah. we didn't do it. But, um, but I don't know. I forgot about that handicap pretty quickly. Um, I just, I don't know, I got so interested in the other parts of it that I yeah. just felt like, I don't know. And and the tape, I don't know, I maybe because I became so familiar with it, just reading it, reading the logs of it, the transcripts of it, and then listening and listening. and li I sort of forgot it wasn't me talking to him sometimes. You didn't I, feel that, like, I would have asked him, I would have pushed back here, or I would have asked that? Or... A little, but not. I mean, in the in the big ways, Mark was great. Like, you know, I'd be like, you know, I'd hear something and I'd be like, oh, oh ask him, ask him. Oh. And, then it, and then like the next minute he would ask and I'd be like, oh, right. there, got it. Yeah. He did it, you know? I mean, I think, so yeah, I think the tape didn't lay out in the way I would have done it, but it was in some ways 
possibly more interesting for it because it was never meant to be heard. It was never meant to be broadcast. It was never meant to be heard outside those two people talking. Right. So it had a certain just ranginess and intimacy that I, he wouldn't have had with me. He would have known he was being recorded for posterity, you know, in a way that I think just changes what you say. So I've read in press accounts that the second season of Serial has had at least 50 million downloads, which is just an incredibly wow. high number, until you think about the number of downloads for the first season of Serial, which is almost 200 million downloads. I can't even wrap my head around that. But 50 million is a pretty big number. Big numbers. And this is the first podcast to win a DuPont Award. Uh, that was a momentous occasion in January when they came up to get their baton. Um, paving the way for future podcasts to win DuPonts. Speaking of which... We'll be open for entries starting on May the 1st for the DuPont 2017. Uh, but uh, May the 1st through July 1st, which is our deadline, journalists out there should be thinking about submitting, hopefully a whole new slew of podcasts, but other things as well, of course. Yes, enter your best reporting. To find out more information, go to www.dupont.org. Um, I want to. I want to. I, um, I think throw it out to students um, because I'm sure there, there's a lot of questions that they have that I have not asked. What was it like to start putting out episodes and have people call in with tips? How did that influence your reporting? And when did you decide to share with your listeners that it did influence your reporting? People like like how you got that new interview. Well, so, so we would we would get certain information. And then um, if it was solid on its face and usable, we would, we would go instant, the next episode, the next opportunity to present that material we would present. We never sat on anything that certainly affected the plot or affected how we thought about the story. Other things were like rumors about Adnan, say, for example, in season one, where it was like, he did this and he did that and he behaved this way in the mosque and like we've got, you know, that stuff we had to report out. And so that took... Months, weeks, months? Yeah, like kind of the whole season. It took a long time. <laughs> so that one we had to hold back until I, until we felt like, well, here's what we can verify and we feel comfortable presenting to you. Here what seems like bullshit or here's what seems like maybe it's true, but who cares and it's, it's not relevant. So it just depended on what it was. But I don't think anything like rocked our world, right? Like we didn't, I don't know. The, honestly, the biggest one to me was maybe a, a, a young woman who came, came forward who had said she had seen Heyman Lee, the victim, um, that day at the time when the murder was supposedly had already taken place. So that the t it was summer. That was the to me that was the biggest one where I was like, oh wait a minute, there's another witness no one's ever heard of. You know, we haven't touched on this, uh, uh, but the the very success of the show. Uh, and, and you're, you're you know, producing and recording and releasing the show as it is becoming a cultural phenomenon. How much did that also change, or did it? Like, or how much did you have to work to insulate you know, the production team and the show from all of that? And from Reddit also. <laughs> yes, from Reddit. I know. Yeah, basically. I'm not sure. It, it, it affected, for me personally, it affected me like totally on like, an emotional and like, 
anxiety-provoking level. I felt incredibly anxious um, the entire time, all of a sudden realizing, like, oh, my God. Um, I'm not sure that it completely changed anything we actually did on the story, other than feeling like we have to be so careful. Like, And I think we're pretty careful anyway. And, like, I mean, it wasn't... I mean, we already had, like, you know, we had kind of everything in place, and we have a fact-checker, and we have got all of that. But... Even more, all of a sudden, it just, I don't know. If you can be more anxious about it and that helps, that's what it, it would have helped. The one thing we did do is we added the episode that's kind of more about Adnan in general, and we added that episode. Um, and that was partially off of listener response. I felt like after the second or third episode, there were people saying to me, like, um, or maybe it was even like the fourth episode and stuff saying like, I, I just think he sound, Adnan sounds so weird. Like, God, like he just sounds guilty. If I were in prison, I'd be like, you know, and wrongfully convicted, I'd be like screaming about my innocence and I'd be doing this and I'd be doing that. And it felt a little like at that point, probably if you took all of Adnan's tape and put it together, it, was, it added up to about seven and a half minutes. And I was like, oof. And, and it felt unfair to have people making judgments. The idea was like, I just want to have like, and I think you had had the same feeling of like, can we just have an episode where we just open it out a little bit? Like, so once we get through a little bit of the plot, necessities where we can just kind of like let it open out a little bit so that I mean you've got you had 40 hours of tape just so that like there's a bit of a feeling the same feeling that you get from that tape and so I think totally. we added that episode we hadn't been planning on doing that one when you have a character that you need to include on tape um, and you can't kind of by your own questions make it a little bit easier on the reader or on the listener um, what do you do, I guess? Bo is difficult. He has, um, first of all, the tape, the tape quality is terrible in a lot of cases. Um, and so that was a challenge. And then, like, he's not super emotive, you know? He has a kind of a flat um, affect. And, um, and I don't know. I mean, I think it was just a little bit went a long way. And so we just had to be sparing about what we used and... Um, I mean, sometimes there's just no way around it, like, and you just do the best you can and have other people. I mean, I feel like, imagine, to me, it's very hard to think about Bo's story without Kim and Kayla. Kim was his sort of, um, this woman who kind of took him in as a teenager and is, remains very, very close to him, and her daughter is very close to Bo also. And I feel like they were kind of, they made me understand Bo more than Bo made me understand Bo sometimes. And so using them, as a way to kind of convey who he is, really. Um, I did not, I was not able to talk to his parents on tape, although I was in communication with them the whole time, but they didn't go on tape, so I didn't have them. And so, I don't know, you sort of like, just look for other people who can, I mean, we did a whole episode about Jay, and we did not have Jay, but I feel like we had people talking very fondly about Jay and not so fondly about Jay, and you just try to create as, as wide a picture as you can with, with what you got. Hi, can you talk a little bit about story selection for season two? Like, was Bo an easy and unanimous selection? Were there other really strong contenders? And kind of how, how going forward do you, will you plan on selecting a story? 
it wasn't, we were working, we, we came out of season one completely open. Um, the one thing we sort of, we had been saying was like, it's not going to be like another murder story. Like, we're not a true crime podcast. We're not a true crime podcast. But then I also felt like, I don't know if we should even be saying that. We literally have no idea what we're doing next. So maybe I shouldn't say it's not a murder story because I really have no clue. We had started working on one story, but then it was becoming very clear that that story wasn't exactly laying out that the way we needed it to lay out and it was going to take longer. And then those guys came up um, and, and, with the bow tape and it, it seemed clear that I was like I can definitely see how this lays out in a in a in a narrative way because I felt like you've got the bow story but I was like oh my god but then you have like the whole story of the war and we can actually talk about what the war what the experience was of fighting the war what were the like what were they doing over there and what were the goals and then his release which is also tied to the war and talk to peace talks and then the response so it was very clear that I was just like there are so many things that we can explore that are even bigger questions that I think are really fascinating that I'm not quite sure where else we could get into this stuff in any kind of a narrative way. One of the things that our professors are always talking to us about are beginnings and ends. And you have to have a strong beginning and a strong end. And I think what stood out for me, especially with Serial 1, was that beginning where you asked that question, do you remember what you did last week, yesterday? You know, it was so good. <laughs> that was Julie's idea. How did you think of that? And when did you think of it? Because I think if you forget that whole thing, like the one thing you won't forget is how the story starts. Well, for me. That's so nice. That's a, I, I was not, I, it was, I didn't think of it as anything that fancy. Oh, I know why. Because it's the first episode. The babysitter, that's why. No, it wasn't the babysitter. <laughs> I it thought was, it was the babysitter. No, I needed a top because it was going to be a This American Life episode. Oh, that's right. That's why. Because I knew that the first episode had to also be a This American Life episode. This American Life always starts with a small anecdote that's the top. I need a top for that show if it's going to be... I didn't know if it was going to be a full 50, like you know, 54 minutes or if we were going to come in shorter and then there was going to be another thing. So that was, that was, it's sort of one of those random things of like, and I had been at This American Life for 18 years and so I'm very used to walking down the street trying to think of a top, a top, um, like which is an opening of a show. Like that's what all of us at This American Life have to at times spend a lot of time is just like staring at a ceiling and being all like, so wait, what's the theme again? One thing uh, we've been going over here at Columbia with radio is when you're doing this type of writing, you should try and ha make it dynamic, like a little bit of view of narrator, then cut to tape and have a decent balance of that. Otherwise, you run the risk of losing uh, the listener. But I think with Serial, it never felt like this, but there are long stretches of just you. Yeah, a lot of talking. And I was wondering if you... But you, it never felt like those long stretches. Thank I wonder. <laughs> scoring, scoring. Yeah. And it was how, how did you, just, just story, is that the answer? Like, besides just good writing, how do you hold that together? If it's just like, it's just starting to feel very script tape, script tape, which means like that we're just having a very, very plotting pacing and it's all the same of where it's like, I'm going to talk for a paragraph and then I'm going to hear about 45 yep. seconds of tape and then I'm going to talk for a paragraph and hear about 45 seconds of tape. And like you just start, so sometimes in those situations, it's like just vary up the pacing a little bit, like have a little more writing at sections or like, can we go tape to tape? We're always looking for moments of where we could possibly, tape to tape means there's music in between the two cuts of tape. 
Um, but yeah, you know, it's funny because the the long periods of stretches that uh, of writing that are on serial, I actually that's longer than anything I've edited and ever gotten used to as well. Um, I would normally, if I was looking at a script like that, I would be like, this isn't gonna, this is way too much writing. This is way too much writing. I have to say, I think the reason it works is Sarah's a really strong writer. Like you're writing exactly to be heard. It's not written writing. It's it's to be it's to be heard, and then you're a very good performer, and you're writing in anecdotes, and then it's true, music really helps. But I'll say one more thing. Thank you for all of those compliments. Yeah. Um, but um, I think probably if you, if you look at the parts of the script that where it is a lot of talking, usually it's, it's either because I don't have the tape, like the person talked to me but not on tape or talked on background so I can characterize. So I don't have the tape or the tape is bad. Like we have the tape but it's bad and it's just gonna be better if I write it. Or I'm telling a story, like I'm telling an anecdote and that helps a lot. You tend to forget that it's not, you know, if I'm telling you a story, a little like mini anecdote inside of something, you get away with, you get away with it more. First of all, my name is Adnan. Oh, hello, Adnan. So, you know, binge watch or binge listening, like seven episodes late night, hearing my name, it was really funny. I guess the question would be were you guys aware that this type of discourse would come from it? The fact that you guys were portraying someone that was definitely living a duality. And this is something that, you know, as a South Asian America, we, you know, a lot of us kind of go through that. Were you aware that you guys were bringing up this type of theme that would be discussed so much? No, I didn't know it was such a topic, actually. Um, so it was interesting. But, but yeah, like that, that, do you mean that the podcast would cause people to discuss it I more publicly? or More or? publicly. I think what it was with, uh, within like my circle, at least, was that it was just fascinating that it triggered a conversation about how we are in this country. And like, let's say I had been put in the same situation you know, those same things would have been thrown at me that I would have had these dual lives. And, oh, absolutely. You know, yeah, and things yeah. like that. And I didn't know if you guys saw that coming. I, I'm not sure I did. I mean, I found it I found it most interesting, I have to say, at trial, that that was the state's case, yeah. essentially, was yeah. that he was um, duplicitous in this way yeah. and, and dishonest. I found it really shameful, actually, yeah. that, that that was their tack. Um, it just seemed really um, ham-fisted and unfair. He may be guilty, but I feel like it's not because of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I was interested in it in that way. But I, I'm not sure that I knew how it would, yeah, feel like sort yeah. of how you felt it, like, yes, that is, this is a real thing. Yeah, because there's like that thing. sensitivity, you know, yeah. especially after post 9-11, you know. And it seems like it's like getting like, worse, in right. fact, instead of getting better since Adnan's day, Yeah. Uh, sadly. Thank you, Julie, Dana, and Sarah. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, Thank real pleasure. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to Julie Snyder, to Sarah Koenig, and Dana Chivas, and of course to Daniel Eller Cohn, our moderator. I don't know how much more time we have with you. Do you have time to briefly tell us something great that you listened to lately? We do recommendations at the end of this podcast, typically, and you're a yeah. much more informed recommender. Well, I am, and I'm. I, I am, and I'm not. Uh, I, I am because it's it's the world that I'm in, but it's also it's not. I'm not because I'm stretched so thin that I that I don't have much time to listen. And also, my my commute is like ten blocks, so you know that's where you usually listen to stuff. Um, 
I, I'm I'm quite interested in the in embedded the the new podcast from uh, from Kelly McEvers and NPR. I think it's very interesting as a concept, and it is uh, I think a good teaching tool because it is kind of behind the scenes of pieces that we've already heard on NPR news, but they're now now it's sort of like how they were put together and and sort of more voices and more human voices from uh, from those stories, and I and I quite I think that's quite successful. Um, the couple episodes that I've heard, my my guilty pleasure, of course, is just like soccer podcasts that I. <laughs> That I listen to. Um, men, men with blazers, or whatever. men with blazers is fantastic. Yeah. The Guardian Weekly uh, Football Weekly podcast is is one of my favorites. Um, but that's just because you know I skip to the sports pages in the paper first because the okay. news is so depressing. So Leicester City or Tottenham? Oh. Uh, it's Leicester. Leicester City. Sorry. Who will win? Yeah. I, I, I I'm an Arsenal fan, so I hope uh. that Leicester City will win because Tottenham winning would be. Unthinkable. My husband's a big Tottenham fan, so that's a shame. But the, the other one I was going to recommend is a really fantastic podcast uh, called "How to Be a Girl" from a producer named Marlo Mack. Um, it's really interesting. It's about raising a child uh, who's trans and identifies as trans at age oh, five or I've six. Heard of this. I've heard of it too. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. really, really moving. And as a parent of a young child, um, it's you know it, we, one thinks of parenting as as a series of challenges and then like infusions of inexpressible joy and then challenges and and kind of and and, um and uh the added level of this kind of you know i can't think of it as anything under stress but also the revelatory kind of beauty of this kind of parenting under this kind of pressure with all the societal um dictates of of gender identity and trying to navigate that in a way that doesn't damage your child but Hmm. frees them to be who they want to be it's just really, really moving. And also a view into a world that you would normally never get to see, right. which is always what yeah, great journalism is. Absolutely. So, yeah, that, that's my other recommendation. That's great. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Join us for our next episode in two weeks, which is our last episode of the season. Our and sixth episode. Yeah. yeah. We'll be hearing from our own Professor June Cross about her latest film. Wilhelmina's War, I think, was you know, maybe a decade in the making. I know that we've been hearing about it from her for years and years, and it's really a labor of love. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. She showed it on campus a couple weeks ago, and we're going to bring you the conversation that happened afterwards. That's it for this episode. On Assignment is produced by Asta Chaturvedi. Thanks, as always, to our funders at the Jesse Baldupont Fund, to Columbia, and to our skillful student fellows, Dan Litkey, Erica Glass, and Laura Brickman. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. And our sound engineer is AJ Mangone. Follow us on Twitter, at OnAssignmentPod. Let us know what you think and review on iTunes. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes as well. Until next time, everybody. Everybody.